Dear Young African, In the words of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, the independence of Ghana is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. Welcome to Dear Young African with me, Nana Fredia Ajamai. In this podcast, we have only one message for the young African listening. Don't give up. Your excuses are valid, but so are your dreams. And this is the place to come to when you need to remind yourself of that truth. In this podcast, we will be speaking to those Africans who keep going to inspire others to do same. So dear young African, if you're listening, this is for you. Hello, podcast family. Welcome to another episode. Today, we're talking about something that most Africans can identify with, but isn't really something we have constructively delved into to really understand what it means. We're talking about Pan-Africanism, that spirit, that ideology that brings Africans together. But truly, does Pan-Africanism do that? Should Pan-Africanism be glorified given the many challenges that the continent faces? It sounds ideal to say that Africans should come together for one big purpose, given the many challenges that we share. But the question is, does the spirit of Pan-Africanism lead to any tangible change at all? I invited Isaac Mutemi, who is from Kenya and is a public policy analyst, to come share his thoughts on the matter. Before this conversation starts, I've got to give you a heads up. We take a lot of detours as we have this conversation and that is mainly because Pan-Africanism is one of those topics that is so difficult to talk about because the history is so distorted. So in order to tell a whole story, we have to tell different parts of it as well. So brace yourself for a good history lesson. If it sounds like we're going off the topic, trust me, we are not. We always center back to what the original question was. So, hey, brace yourself. This episode will be in two parts, so do make sure you follow up next week for part two of it. Like I said, Pan-Africanism is a very broad topic and there was no way we were going to digest that in just 45 minutes. So that's why we're having two parts to this. And I suspect that two parts is not even enough, but anyway, enjoy. Hi, Isaac. Welcome to the Dear Young African podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for making it. Um, this conversation stems from something that you started on the, on the, on the platform. We're both part of uh, the Black Economist Network platform. Shout outs to them, by the way. Uh, the, what's her name? Felicia. Felicia, who is the, the founder of it. Shout outs to Felicia and her team. And it started this way. You posted, you made a post there and it sparked a lot of reactions, mixed feelings. Some people agreed with you. Some people did not. And um, before we get into that, you know, let's, let's, let's bring it down to I invited you to the podcast because, you know, what you shared was really uh, intriguing. It was it was really important. And I also loved hearing other opinions about Pan-Africanism. You know, it's a it's a term that people use differently in different spaces, depending on what what you're talking about in, in that context. So I want us to start the, the conversation this way. How would you define Pan-Africanism in your own words? And yeah, let's, let's start it from there. Wow. So. Firstly, uh, I should warn you that I did some preparation. <laughs> of course, I was, I, I'm happy you did some preparation. <laughs> 
So uh, some of what I say will be my own original thinking, but much right. of it will just be building upon uh, what has already been published uh, yeah. about the topic. Yeah. Uh, so let's let me attempt. So Pan-Africanism for me is a political movement. I think it's essential to identify that. I know there are many thinkers and commentators who extrapolated it to cultural movement, but I will explain why it is primarily a political movement. So it's a political movement that was formed as a response to the domination of uh, people of African descent by uh, global hegemonies, uh, whether in Africa through colonialism yeah. or in the United States uh, through slavery. Uh, United States, the Caribbean, and uh, the South of America. So yeah, so short is just a, a political movement that grew as a response uh, to the domination of black people uh, right. by global forces of hegemony. Right. And one of the things that, you know, in preparing for this podcast that I realized was that, you know, it goes far back as, you know, 18th century started, not starting with, because um, the history is, is a bit distorted. So you hear of groups like the Sons of Africa, you know, who are Black black people who are educated in London, who started a movement, abolitionist movement, saying that, you know, slave trade should stop. And, you know, it moves on straight. I, I think um, African thinkers become more uh, relevant here in quotes, uh, when we have the fifth Pan-African Congress, right? Kwame Nkrumah, uh, W.E. Dubois, go, uh, and, and so on. I wanted to ask you, you know, when these African uh, thinkers come into context there, you know, from since since the 18th century till when, I think 1945, when the fifth Pan-African Congress was held, do you think that by then the original intent of Pan-Africanism had changed? Do you want to compare and contrast uh, those two periods for us? So uh, first I'll say that because I'm uh, clearly uh, situated within an African context, it yeah. is far more important to be to trace the uh, Pan-African movement, I think beginning around, 19, around 1910, I think the first Congress uh, called by W.E. Dubois and going and following the congresses all the way up to, I think the most recent one was in Ghana uh, around 2014. And before that, there was one in Uganda in, right. uh, in uh, 2007, uh, thereabouts. So um, I would say though that, yeah, so that's that's a caveat that for me, yeah. my focus has been the African, African thing, yeah. strain. But I would say, I would say, uh, with regards to the original, okay, this is actually very interesting. It's very interesting that you've just thrown that, I've reflected on something else. It's a very important strand to locate this thinking within the thinking of Africans in diaspora. Mm. Okay, it's very essential to locate this within the, the uh, context of Africans in the diaspora, whether that's in in Europe. Uh, right. primarily the UK or in the Americas because for two reasons. Okay. One, the, the ability to organize a movement across territories would obviously require resources, yeah. uh, require uh, polit some political acumen, 
uh, and require some networks. Yeah. Which would accrue more readily to people living within more developed economies in the context of uh, uh, the capitalist system you are in, uh, as compared to the pre-independence African states that where most of uh, black people resided in. So it was inevitable that the uh, Africans in the diaspora would lead the conversation on uh, what do we make of African voices yeah. in this global ecosystem. Uh, but also secondly, and this is quite uh, complex and quite complicated, the fact that it came from people whose uh, situation was within those, uh, those countries and territories where the dominant conversation was, um, I mean, if you look at the UK and you look at America, the, their agenda, their national agenda is not, uh, does not revolve around the place of black people. So when black people mm. speak in the UK, yeah. they are speaking in response to the asking, has the national policy of the UK ignored black people? Yeah. Has it centered us EGC? And the same thing, and I think with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, this is m much more clear, uh, much more obvious. Yeah. But yeah, there's a, a great deal of, and I'm using this very sensitively, but there's a great deal of reactionism, okay, uh, in the context that these black thinkers were coming from, okay. I'm using that very carefully. I'm, I'm using that word very carefully, and we'll have occasion to digest it down the line. Yeah. But the consequences for that, the consequences for it primarily being a reactionary movement, which is you know basically a response to what's uh, uh, happening, is that it has had a very complicated trajectory within African territories. Because when, so African leaders, so if you follow, for example, the 1945 Congress was very, very important, very essential yeah. for uh, the, uh, you know, first of all, just bringing together all African thinkers and then also giving some sort of a momentum to yeah. the push for uh, freedom, for independence. But if you look at the trajectory of the, some of the leaders who attended that Congress and uh, later on went on to become presidents yes. uh, in their own countries, they have very colorful, uh, and I use colorful here in <laughs> not a flattering sense, many of them have very flattering records after the, after the fact, to the extent that I think in, in the Pan-African Congress of 1974, there was actually a debate and this was held in Tanzania, of all places. Right. There was actually a debate on whether or not they should invite the Pan-Africanists who had gone on to become presidents. Wow. Whether they belonged within, whether they still belonged within the Pan-Africanist movement. And this was because so, of the unimpressive performance after they went on to become heads of state. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I won't, let me, let me not, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, right we're, 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 yeah, we're getting into the meat of it already. <laughs> you're still you're still an interviewer, so I'm going to keep the mind back to you. But it, I can't help it when you know this, these connections are everywhere. When you look at them, they are just yeah. know, screaming to be called out. Like they look at yeah. me here, look at me here, look at me here. So you know, let, you, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll get into the we're getting into the meat of it already, and I love it. Let's let's continue from you know the quotes that you put uh, on on that page that we're both part uh, part of. Uh, 
I think it's from the book Why Nations Fail by Darren Asi Asimoglu. I hope I'm pronoun- pronouncing this right. It's the quote that you put there. Let me check. Was this something that you wrote from a re- from reflecting on the words of the book or a, a quote by by Darren? So uh, what I the screenshot I took yes. that was just from the book directly. Oh okay okay okay. Yeah. And then I think I my, there I was a reflection. Something. Okay okay. So this is what you wrote. I am generally uncomfortable with approaches that glamorize Pan Africanism because history tells us that. All those impressive cross-continental organizations have centuries, sometimes millennia, or very sordid, cruel, but pragmatic history behind them. So I wonder why the African one should be constructed out of good vibes. But my incredulity is stretched even further when Kwame Nkrumah is quoted in, in the exchange. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there are two parts to this. You've you've already touched on how these heads of states who started as African thinkers um, after the the, the the fifth Pan-African Congress, in your opinion, went on to be very un, unimpressive. And there's a part where you talk about, you know, Kwame Nkrumah, you, you're not really agreeing with the idea or the notion that Kwame Nkrumah is the father of Pan-Africanism. I want us to, to touch on, you know, the, the relevance of it in, in, in the African story, because this is something that is very close to the hearts of people. And you, you use an interesting word when you say colorful and not in a good sense in any way, the way you put it. Pan-Africanism is, is an ideology that is very close to the hearts of many Africans. And it looks like you have come in with the understanding that, you know what, let's really focus on what it has actually achieved for us. Is there anything? Let's have a, a critical conversation. Has it actually achieved anything for Africans? So in your opinion, do you actually think, like I asked you on, on that page, do you actually think, think that Pan-Africanism is a scam? And why, what, what, what is your argument there? Okay, so I'm... Um... Thanks for that. Uh, I'm very careful to get into what you would call uh, blind alleys without illuminating first the door to the alley and whatever other possible options. I'm using an an analogy here. Right. Whatever other possible options uh, we could have taken. Okay. And uh, so that's an analogy. Let me expound on that analogy. When we say, when I say, uh, or I suggest that Pan-Africanism has failed. Yeah. Okay. And there is someone else who stands on the side and responds, hey, what do you mean? I mean, it has done X and Y and Z and Z for me. My immediate temptation is to take a step back. Before we further entrench our positions where you make your claim and I make a counterclaim and you make a claim and I make a counterclaim and, yeah. and each of us is just you know, uh, drilling down uh, their position. Let's take a step back just so that we can understand um, how you came to the premise that you're making and yeah. how I came to the premise that I am making. Okay? Yes. So that perhaps even in that process, it might even come out that maybe even uh, I, I could have taken a different standing point. As they say in lingo now, maybe I could have chosen a different hill to die on. <laughs> right. right so so let's do that let's do right. that in this context which is actually what if you read my post that's actually where i was coming from yes uh, yes I, I i i remember i was quite busy and it, i think it must have been in the evening when i when i posted that so i didn't give the full context from my original post but i think it's necessary now to delineate that because when i talk about uh all those uh impressive uh cross-continental organizations here, I am talking about not just 
the African context, I'm talking about in the global context that we right. know. So you're asking any uh, cross-continental organization that we know right now, how did they come to be? And how did they get to be where they are? Okay. So that was the standpoint that I started from. And, yeah. then, and then the example of Nkrumah became an addendum to that question. Yes. We'll get into that, that part later on. Right. Yeah. And the question and the, and the issue is, uh, so I, I'll, I'll make I'll make uh, two comments here now. Sure. So I'm sure. So you you are you in Ghana right now? No, I'm in the UK. You're in the UK. Yeah. Where are you originally from? I'm from Ghana. You're from Ghana. Yes. You're from Ghana and now in the UK. Okay. Have you come across this statement that African history is poorly told? Have I come across a situation where African history is poorly told? That statement, that statement, the statement. Oh, yes, certainly, certainly. Was this back in in Ghana or just in the UK? No, this is conversations across. So I've I've had that uh, across different forums, uh, maybe discussing with friends, talking about how, you know, I think there's a there's a quote that we normally hear of if if the the lion fails to be. I don't I'm not sure if you're uh, very familiar with that quote. I've forgotten what it says, but. Normally, it is people saying that we are not in charge of our narrative. You know, we, it's because we end up hearing, we end up being taught what other people have written about us, not necessarily what we have researched ourselves. So that is in the context in which you hear African history being poorly told. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's a very good starting point. I'm going to respond to the, that issue, that specific issue of who, sh- who gets to shape the narrative. Yes. But for now, let me, let me get to get the broader perspective which is actually why i really love that book why nations fail so if you read the introduction and you read the commentary on it there are quite there's a, a significant constituency that doesn't agree with the book yes and the others who swear by the book which is healthy i'll also talk about that a little bit the the characteristics of healthy debates which is one of the big problems in africa uh, that, that happens. So yeah, um, but what I loved about the book, I don't completely agree with its thesis, but what I love it is the ambition to draw connecting lines between broad sorts of history. So you would find, uh, particularly, uh, this is something that I had not seen in the text on political economy before, exploring how the incidence of the, the plague in Europe influenced how their political institutions developed. Right. Okay. And moving on from that, uh, how, because that the incidence of the plague immediately affected things like uh, uh, property ownership. Uh, it, it affected the cost of labor in the UK. It affected, uh, it affected who got the chance to uh, expand their, uh, their Navy. So uh, the UK came, came out of that experience quite uh, weakened. And that's one of the reasons why they were amongst the last of the European countries that they were in competition with. They were the last to land on the, in the Americas. And uh, the, the only territory that they could colonize was the North America, because by that point, South America, which was much more wealthy uh, at that time, they had gold deposits, it had all these minerals, and it had very sophisticated uh, political uh, systems, had already been claimed by Portugal and Spain. So the only territory left, the leftovers, was for Britain, and that Britain had to contend itself with that. And mm-hmm. then it goes into a beautiful, beautiful uh, examination of how that affected the development of democracy in America. I won't get into that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, like, let's, let's stick to the African context. <laughs> yes. And so that's on the one hand, I think that's one of the texts that uh, has come. Um, on the, in the Asian context, because I always try to uh, situate my thinking, I, I always try to, to look both East and West and ask, okay, what's happening? What was happening in the East and what was happening in the West? Right. I think the text in, uh, the, the text, one of the texts that most influenced my understanding of the geopolitical scenario in the East was a history of Japan. Uh, there's a t- small text on the history of Japan uh, tracing, uh, going over about 1,000 years of history. And one of the things that stuck with me, uh, or at least a few of the things that stuck with me, one, Japan had a very, very violent history for something like a thousand years. Uh, and this was because it had you know, series of feudal chiefs uh, who everybody thought, everybody wanted to be the king. Everybody wanted mm. everybody else to bow before them. And they had this series of uh, war after war after war that if a certain feudal chief wins now, uh, uh, they make sure that they eliminate everybody, the family, especially the, the, the lineage of the, 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 the predecessor they deposed. They kill all the sons, they kill all the daughters even, uh, they kill everybody who had a legitimate claim to the throne. And then the, the next person who comes after that does the same thing. And this was right. a cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle. Now, that's, on, that's the internal equation. The external equation, Japan had been in constant tension with China for yes. quite a while, okay? So uh, they would take advantage of Chinese technology and learn from it, but they would also take, uh, if they could find an opportunity to capitalize on something they thought the Chinese were not doing, they would be very eager to take that, uh, take that effort at the same time. Yeah. China, on the other hand, was always very aggressive. Uh, it had this very um, paternalistic attitude towards the rest of Asia. China, first of all, thought that they were, they were the center of heaven. Um, <laughs> we thought that China is the center of heaven. And that determined how they interacted with everybody. One of the reasons why China never colonized uh, other territories, even though by the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, they were the most, the wealthiest uh, economy and the most advanced um, civilization. One of the reasons they never colonized other people is because they didn't see why it was their business to go to other less developed places. They thought it was the business of those other less developed places to come to the center of the earth, which was China. And they're already okay. dealing with poverty. Or- so, so they had, they, they, they did have, they had poor people, they had uh, lots of difficulties, but they also had some very sophisticated technologies. Uh, I think you, you know, uh, the printing press came from China. Yes. Uh, the, so which, which meant that literacy, the entire technology of literacy, uh, you know, writing down records and keeping records. They had some very well-kept records. I think up to, to now, their records go back 2000 years. You can see the written records. They have yeah. a very well-developed bureaucracy going back thousands of years. So for those reasons, like, I mean, you look at, oh yeah, and I should mention this. Uh, so this is the basically that Asian uh, territory. So there was India as well, and then there was China. Yeah. Uh, for a very long time, the Europeans were focused or heavily focused on trading with them. So in fact, and this, this now gets us square to some of the issues up here we're discussing here. I was waiting for you to draw the parallels. <laughs> again? I was waiting for you to draw the parallels with the African context. <laughs> I, no, I, I, I would. 
I'm, first of all, I'm not going to make like for like comparisons, but I am going to make comparisons. I will okay. do that. But it okay. will not be like for like. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, you may or may not be aware uh, that when, what's his name? Uh, Christopher Columbus, when he was uh, discovering the Americas, yeah. his intention had actually been to find a route to India. And that's the reason why the people they found in the Americas were called Indians, right? Mm. Indians. Because the focus for uh, several centuries up to that point, uh, Europe had been competing. Uh, European territories had been competing amongst themselves to figure out, okay, who can get the most profitable, the most uh, productive ties with the Asian continent? So you can trade with India, you can get trade routes to India. And this goes all the way back to uh, Silk Roads which mm. I won't talk about here. Now, the consequence of that, the consequence of that intense period and in a very prolonged and intense period of, of trade between Europe and Asia was it had many, many profound uh, uh, consequences. So it had, it, had, it had consequences for their Navy, the development of their Navy, uh, how strong the Navy became because you just had to keep on building, keep on finding uh, new technologies and new methods of building even bigger and better ships. Mm. You, you know, uh, it had implications on that commerce. You, you have to make sure you keep your records well. You have to make sure that you, tr- you, 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 you come up with the most innovative strategies to market your products, find, find, find the, the, the market that you need for the goods that you have. So this is all that, uh, I mean, at, at some point leading up to, uh, before the opium war in, when was this? Um, I think my, my dates are failing me, but it should be around something, some place around 1830s. But around the, the opium war, uh, one of the delicacies in England was tea from India. And, you know, the most established uh, England, uh, English households could not do without tea, like, and tea and spices. Yeah. So, so far, so the first comparison I'm going to make here is, so far, Africa is only, if is, it is mentioned here, it is mentioned in passing, or uh, it's in the periphery of a conversation that is already ongoing between uh, Europe and, and, and Asia. Asia. At this point, uh, I will uh, go back to what I, I told you about, uh, the fact that Africa's history is poorly told, uh, shout out to a prolific historian on Twitter. Uh, his handle is Isaac Samuel. I think it's at Isaac uh, Samuel. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just mentioned this last night. I mean, a lot of people talk about how poorly told Africa's history is, but he actually is educating people on African history. He will tell you about states, the, I think yes, last evening he was talking about the Asante and how mm. the the interactions between the British and the Asante led to the boundaries of the Ghanaian state that uh, exists today. So that's a bad following. Yeah. I am not as prolific as he is. So I, I do not know much. I don't know enough about the ties, the, the intricate connections that were developing within the African continent between traders and African uh, traders uh, going back uh, 500 or 600 years. But what yeah. I do know is that the interaction between Europe and Asia shaped the geopolitics of the world as it is today, mm. okay? And so on the one hand, I mean, first of all, the discovery of the Americas was 
uh, a byproduct of them trying to figure out new ways of conducting their trade. And then secondly, um, you may not know this. This is something I myself went discovered last weekend because I happened to be having a conversation with a family friend who is also very educated on history. And uh, he pushed me to, he asked me a couple of questions and I had to go back to Google and, and check it out. Yeah. And I found out that the reason why Britain specifically uh, colonized East Africa is because of the Nile. And the reason why the Nile made sense to them is because of the Suez Canal. So the Suez Canal was their, I think the Suez Canal was completed in uh, 1859. Uh, the reason why, the, why Britain uh, focused on, uh, on the Nile and the Suez Canal is because it was their quickest route to India. And they wanted to make sure that they were in control of the waters that led to the Suez Canal. So that's so they made it a priority to follow the Nile all the way to, I mean, the, river, the Nile all the way to its formation in Lake Victoria. Right. Lake Victoria is shared by three African territories, that's Kenya, uh, Tanzania, and Uganda. And so when they, they got it, then they decided all the territories around this, we're going to make sure that we control this. Mm. Now, so far, you can see that this is a this is a continental game that is being played by all these different actors. Everybody is you know trying to figure out how do I get this? How do I get this? What is the need for me? What is the need for me? What? Yeah. How do I score goals? So how do I you know get uh, to plant my flag on a territory that makes sense, that makes economic sense for me, that makes political sense for me, and. All up to this po point, we haven't mentioned anything about the slaves, uh, mm -hmm. the slave trade that was, which is, uh, I'm suspecting it's a profoundly uh, uh, delicate issue and also heavily discussed issue in Western Africa. We didn't yeah. get to experience the Atlantic trade ourselves, but we haven't mentioned that so far up to yeah. this point. Now, that is, I'm, 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 I'm summarizing a lot at this point, but there is, that is largely the or some aspects of the wider game that is being played out, where by the time countries are deciding to form alliances, to form strategic alliances, this is the thinking that is informing them. They're thinking, okay, uh, if, the, the, if the Dutch realize that the British are becoming too strong, they make an alliance with the Portuguese. Exactly. Portuguese realize, oh, we need to counter these guys, they make this, they make this. And that's how this, you know, uh, uh, cross-continental initiatives are being done. I call this, uh, I call this, I, I had to, to coin a phrase for this because just to make it easier for me to think through this, I call this the dollars and math game. <laughs> Interesting. There's money there and the calculation yes. there. That's a dollars and math game. When the African agitators get on the scene, so the way, so this dollars and math game eventually matures into colonialism. For us, mm. so by that point, I mean, around that time they had already uh, begun colonizing India. But for us, that process came matured a little later yes. in the scramble for Africa in 1885, and you know the delineation of territories that were to be occupied by each different power. So that game matures about 200 years later, and it gets the scramble for Africa. We get colonialism, and then we get all these nasty uh, uh, people on our territories, just subjugating everybody, beating everybody, and making sure that you follow the rules. So, and 
of course, we don't like it. And our ancestors, that is, they don't like it. And they respond. And, uh, and, and now all these conversations begin. Uh, some, something like uh, between 10, because I, I know Jomo Kenyatta got active on the organizing scene around 1915. So it took about uh, from 18, around 18, say 90 to 1915, it takes, uh, that's 25 years. Yeah. Right. It takes 25 years for them for uh, first of all, because first of all, why it, it takes 25 years for people, for actors of the mold of Kenyatta to get on the scene is because they first had to get an education. You first had to get a school. So you had mm-hmm. to wait for the missionaries to come to your territory, establish schools. You go through the system. You learn to read and write. You learn to speak in the English language. And yeah. now you get now you can connect that with your own grievance and then you can speak about it and say, hey, I don't like what you're doing. Before we had these scholars coming on the scene, we had the um, uh, tribal resistances, which I don't know this case in Ghana, but in Kenya, many of them were crushed without uh, with prejudice. So all the com- many of the communities in Kenya fought against the British quite uh, seriously, and the British crushed all the all those revolutions. Yeah. So the only yeah, one sorry. that the only one that came back to be be significant was the Mau Mau in Kenya that we talk about, uh, mm. the Mau Mau movement, which I'm sure you've heard about. So, and then of course now the Pan Africanism movement matures, and you get Kwame Nkrumah, you get uh, Kenyatta, uh, Kenyatta, you get uh, Julius Nyerere, uh, and you get all these other actors, you know, now congregating and traveling around the world and yeah. speaking about what they want and what they want for Africa and how they want to do it. But there's a small problem. There's a small problem. All their uh, organizing is centered around what they are against. They are against the domination by foreigners. Which makes sense? It makes sense. It makes absolute sense that in that time, the most important political question, political conversation was how do we kick these people out? Exactly. What it, however, does not, what it leaves unsaid and what it doesn't extrapolate or explain, or at least, or doesn't explain very well is, okay, let me borrow from what I told you earlier. What is the dollars and math game for you, the African agitators? And this is important. This is important because in the question of uh, analysis of political movements and power, especially uh, talking about power, uh, in my view, you have roughly two sides that you have to reconcile. You have the dollars and math game, which is just the brute strategy. Uh, what is the need for you? Uh, how, uh, who's your ally and why? Yeah. Are you going to make money? Uh, how are you going to, you know, uh, that's the, and you cannot extricate the, that dollars and math game from power. It's not possible. When you, if and when you try to do that, the result is always hypocrisy and instability. But wouldn't you argue that the dollar and math game, first of all, putting this in, into context, this is a time where they're trying to free themselves from, you know, being dependent on, on, uh, on you know, they are being colonized, right? So let's put that in context. That's the first thing. Also, in terms of strategy, wouldn't you say that the dollar math game there would be Pan-Africanism? Because that is what all these African thinkers advocated for. It is situated on that understanding that if we come together, 
there is there is more power in unity, right? And if we're able to free ourselves, one Kwame Nkrumah says, okay, let's form this thing called the United States of Africa, right? And if we've all we're all able to come together, he makes you know at uh, at, at independence, he says that what the independence of Ghana is meaningless unless it's linked up with the total liberation of Africa of the African continent, right? Would you not say that? I mean, it goes back to the original question. Would you not say that? their dollar and math game that in that context was you know that power in unity it seems that there is no to you it may seem that oh where is the strategy in there but you know but in the dollar and math game you mentioned things that like allies you have other african countries who share a similar trouble in this case colonization who if you do partner with you are likely to what have freedom good good it's true up to a point have you heard of the phrase um if you want to test someone, do not give them hardship because anybody can survive hardship. If you truly want to test someone, give them power. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that? I've heard, I've heard a lot of parts of that. Not the first yes. one. <laughs> if you want to test someone, don't give them anybody, anybody. Anybody can survive hardship. It's the other actor who is determining the terms and all you have to do, whatever they give you, the formula for surviving hardship is just to say, whatever you give me, I will survive. But the formula for surviving power with your ideals intact, it's not linear. Now you have to actually think what happens when you are the bad guy. Uh, and here, I can't resist this. I have to quote this. Uh, uh, it's, it's both, I think it's Jay-Z and he's quoting the Dark Knight. Uh, and it goes something like, um, yeah, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Draw the parallels for me. How is that related to, to what you're saying? It's related to what I'm saying because if you really want to understand how their game worked and how their game made sense, don't just look at them in the context of when they are the underdog. Look at them after they actually hold the reins to power. Mm. And then ask, do the ideas, do the things you're still talking about 20, 30 years ago, do they still make sense now? And if you look at the African context, I'm going to make a controversial claim, maybe not so controversial, depending on where you're coming from. The reform and the activist movement in many African uh, contexts is, and we have, we have seen this in Kenya, and I have been fortunate to closely follow the story in Uganda, and I had an opportunity to look at the conversation in Tanzania. And then I also had an opportunity to study a little bit of South Africa. The trajectory for these reform-minded activists is that you agitate against you know, the big man, the bad man, the bad mm -hmm. guy, until the moment, the moment of inflection when you take hold of power, when yeah. it becomes your turn in the seat, and then... From then on, it's just chaos. And it's not, it's not, uh, uh, it has happened in, in enough times that you cannot dismiss it as an outlier. It happened in Kenya's case, it has happened in South Africa's case, it has happened in Uganda's case, it has happened so many times. And that's why I'm telling you that if you want to test someone, don't give them hardship because in hardship, that's the reform part when they are an activist when they're, you know, clenching their fists and saying, give us power, mm -hmm. give us freedom. But look at them when they're actually not the president, when they're actually controlling how things get done. Nelson Mandela, for example, is someone I, I struggle a lot with Nelson Mandela. 
<laughs> you did mention that. I, I, I need to ask you this, Isaac. Sorry to sorry to catch you in there. I want to ask you this to clarify for those listening. Are you against the idea of Pan-Africanism or are you against those who took who who held the reins and said, we are Pan-Africanists, we are going to help Africa, we are, you know, bringing Africa together and 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 uh, bringing that economic freedom that we need? Because we need to set the, the context very clear. Absolutely. Here again, I am going to pull that trick I pulled earlier, which is extrapolate a little bit and ask, let's look at what the bigger picture is. And here, uh, I had to, uh, uh, this is a, a, a terminology I use when trying to explain this, because it's a problem I meet frequently enough when you're studying Africa's politics and Africa's history, that I just had to give it a name. And the name I give it is the absence of a calculus of African thought. I'll repeat that. The absence of a calculus of African thought. Now, what does that mean? I mean, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Now, uh, I, I have, I, I come from an engineering background, Australian as an engineer, so that explains my affinity to math, mathematical <laughs> term. And I like, uh, so what calculus helps us to do, uh, the purpose of calculus is to assess how quantities are changing uh, with respect to time and distance. Yeah. Okay, so that's the power of calculus. And when it came in, it completely revolutionized the power of what people could do from without calculus, we couldn't have machines, we couldn't have, you know, power, we couldn't have, we couldn't have built a modern world without calculus. Now, the problem I have when I bring this paradigm into the African context, and I look at the issue, so you mentioned it. And yeah, I I told you that I will come back to this when you talked about the issue of uh, who controls the narrative. And Mm I think Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie talks about this. Uh, she talks about the danger of a single story. A single story, yeah. Okay. Uh, what I'm attempting to do, what, what I am wrestling with when I'm thinking of it in, in terms of calculus, is I'm asking how comfortable is that the community that is in context, the community that is in conversation, how comfortable is it with changing times, with changing dynamics? Okay. And that question in the African context is frequently poorly answered, okay? Because by the time you're telling me that someone is controlling the narrative for African countries, my question is, um, how did they get to the point where they control the narrative, firstly? And then mm-hmm. secondly, and then people, of course, say that they were overwhelming, they, they had so much power, they had this, and they had this, yeah. and they had that. Fair point, fair point. Those are very good points. However, when you look uh, uh, I think this was, uh, I forget the reference right now, but someone was talking about uh, some prisoner who was dying in prison was talking about how they can conquer my body, they can conquer my, they can take my wealth, they can take away everything, but they cannot take away my mind. Mm. Okay? And you're talking about how it's his mind that uh, kept him alive and kept him going. And the question I ask is, how is it that all this material suffering, because m- much of what was happening in Africa is just material deprivation. Why is it that material deprivation very quickly um, accelerates to psychological deprivation in African territories? Say that again. Why is it that material deprivation mm-hmm. frequently accelerates to psychological deprivation? Are those two not connected? They are. Let me tell you this. In, in tactics, in war and strategy, Losing is not a big issue. Losing is not the problem. You can lose. If you're a soldier and you're going to war, a good soldier, a good strategist would know 
we, we may lose. We may lose some battles. We may lose entire war. But the thing that really matters is your response to losing, okay? Because it's your response to losing that determines whether you, you will just lose that one war or whether you will lose the next 1,000 wars that follow. So yeah. if you lose one war, that's material deprivation. If you lose the next 1,000 wars, that's psychological deprivation. Because you, why is it that you never learn the trick? Why is it that you never see the trick? You see it once and twice and thrice and four times and five times and six hundred times, and you're still not learning. That's psychological. That's not material. And connecting connected to that also is the idea that when people, when you go, when you in, in a context with people and you lose, sometimes loss is actually good, because losing actually tells you what is the value of all the stuff you've been doing. What is the value of your preparation after that point? If you fail an examination. It is an indictment on the process you have followed up to that point. Okay, so yeah. it's 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 benign. It's the, the the loss itself is not what destroys you. It's what you do is what you say. Okay, so either a you learn your lesson. You're like, thank you, I've learned my lesson. Or it tells you like, okay, when you lose, then the narrative becomes I am always destined to lose. So drawing it back to the African context. Your main point is we could so have now, done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So going back now, all the way back to the question of is my issue with mm-hmm. Pan-Africanism or is it with the people who took over? Yes. And my issue is to say that overshadowing all these actors is a bigger problem that in the ecosystems that we have emerged, there is not much facility within the African context for us to navigate change. I'm, I'm not sure I understand you, Isaac. Please Come ask. Again. I, I hope, I hope I, uh, <laughs> I, I am, I'm a good uh, communicator and I'm happy to take as many questions as is necessary for, for this point to get home. It sounds to me like you're saying, so I'm going, I'm going to reflect and you can tell me whether I'm, I'm wrong or right. You're telling me that there's more to it than just looking at the context of Pan-Africanism and the Pan-Africanists. Is that what you're saying? Okay, he's Absolutely. giving me a thumbs up for those who can who are listening Absolutely. to this. <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I forgot this. No, you know this is confusing because this Don't is worry a whole about video. It. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Perfect. So that, yes, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. It's bigger than the actors who took over, yeah. and the ideas that had that the uh, the thinkers had espoused. It's bigger than both of those. Okay, so I mean, I want. I, the truth is, when whenever you discuss something as controversial as, as Pan-Africanism, it is an endless conversation. And so coming to this, this conversation, I knew this could take hours and hours and hours. And I wanted to break the, the pie into certain parts. And I know that, you know what, sometimes in order to have a very good conversation, you need to touch on so many you know, parts of it. But let's break the pie down and touch on certain parts, if, if, if you will, you know, so that people can, because I, I, I don't believe that this is going to be a lecture that that will you know enlighten people forever on pan-africanism i think we're, we're sowing a seed that people will take in and go and listen to another lecture somewhere or go and listen to another podcast somewhere on pan-africanism and add connect the dots right so let's come back to you know 21st century african continent um things that are coming up like you know the african continental free trade area those things those those things that are coming up i would say are coming up because we are beginning to see the essence 
or we are continuing to see the essence of, you know, one Africa coming together. If Africa cannot organize, have 54 countries come together or 55 countries come together, how then do we build economic power? Because economic power also comes with the numbers, doesn't it? China is, 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 is powerful because, you know, it's 1.3 billion people and uh, so many other reasons. So that is why I, 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 I struggle to also agree with you when you say you do not see the essence of Pan-Africanism, because I think that these new things that are coming up are coming up out of the spirit of Pan-Africanism. Would you not agree? Okay. So I'll ask you a question first. Okay, go ahead. Try and eliminate this. Okay, so I will, I will uh, situate the strategy of multiple countries coming together for yeah. trade and business interest as geopolitics, okay? Yeah. If you'll allow me. Can we, can, we, can we summarize that under the vague term geopolitics? Is sure, let's right? go ahead. So, and then I'll ask you, did Pan-Africanism invent geopolitics? Hey, thank you so much for staying to the end of this episode. If there was anything that was so helpful on this episode, I would love for you to do two things for me. First, please like, follow, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And two, please share this with another young African you think this will benefit. Or you can just post it on that WhatsApp group you're part of. We are trying to build a community for young Africans here and I would love for you to be part of it and also invite others to join. So thank you and see you next week Monday with another episode.